I often um, share with you stories of my father, who was a pastor in South Chicago when I was growing up and as a kid in the 60s. I often use him as illustrations and have stories that I share with you. One story that I've shared before happened in 1966 when my dad, pastoring this small Bible church in South Chicago, needed to supplement our family income with some side work and right through our backyard was a glass shop and it was run by a guy named John Merrick and my dad would work part-time or on call with John Merrick when he had big jobs to do and one of the things that this glass shop next to our home there in the suburbs of South Chicago would do is they had uh, contracts with some of the big steel mills in Gary, Indiana back then and so my dad one afternoon was helping on one of these big jobs with these huge steel framed windows from these old steel mills they would take them out, load them on a truck, take them up to the glass shop, reglaze them, repair all of the broken windows and so forth, and get them back to working order and then return and install them. And my dad was in the back of a truck with a load of these big windows and he was sliding them out to the men on the ground and out of the corner of his eye, he realized that the entire stack of huge windows was falling towards him. He moved to push against them. They pushed him back with their weight, and when his elbows hit the sides of the enclosed box van in which he was working, both of his wrists snapped and broke. Well, I was only six years old at the time, and uh, the news came to us, and we ran home, and my dad had been to the doctor, and he had his arms in casts, and I made my way down the hallway and I remember my mom and dad's bedroom door was open a bit and I looked in and there was my father on his bed with his arms across his chest and his stomach and he was breathing hard and he was moaning. And um, I'm sure it was very painful. One of his wrists never did heal correctly. I imagine he was also moaning about what in the world am I going to do now with my arms in casts. But I tell you, that bothered me, and I ran down the hall and got out of there. It was the first time I had ever seen my father in weakness. And I didn't like it. It upset me deeply. As we turn to Matthew 26 today, you might get that feeling just a little bit because we're going to see our Lord Jesus in weakness today. We have never seen him like this. We've been studying the Gospel of Matthew for really several years, and we're in Matthew chapter 26 this morning, and we're at that most remarkable passage where we have recorded by Matthew uh, this time where our Lord is going to move up to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's going to pray. It's the middle of the night. You'll recall that they have finished the Passover in the upper room, their last supper together. That is where our Lord instituted communion or his table, the bread and the cup as memorial over the Passover supper. And he establishes these in memorial to the new covenant that it is in, that is in his body and in his blood. You'll recall that it was at the conclusion of their time together in that upper room that last week we talked about 
our Lord looking at Peter, looking at his disciples and telling them that all would fall away on account of him. And remember, Peter talked immediately, talked back to the Lord and said, Lord, never, I will never betray you. And they all agreed. They all agreed. They all agreed. We know from the Gospel of John that our Lord did significant teaching in that upper room. And John records extensive teaching of what went on in the upper room. It's also in the upper room there before they left that our Lord had taken off his robe and he had washed the disciples' feet. He had instituted then the bread and the cup in the new covenant. And then it was time to go. And they, of course, Judas having already gone. So there's 11 of the disciples with him. And they head down and our Lord decides that he wants to go pray in this garden spot called Gethsemane. We're in Matthew chapter 26. Our text is easy to remember today because it's Matthew 26, 36 to 46. That's very helpful to guys like me. And um, our text is verses 36 to 46. Let's read it and understand what's happening here. And I'm telling you, you have never seen Jesus like you're going to see him in this passage. It's a bit bothersome. It's weakness. We don't like our Lord Jesus to be weak. Let's read it. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. By the way, Gethsemane simply means oil press. It was likely a relatively small garden there on the Mount of Olives with, a, with walls, either stone walls, some gated walls, an entryway, and olive trees. Uh, some Bible students speculate that it was perhaps owned by a friend or an acquaintance of our Lord Jesus. We know, and I reference this in your notes, we know from John chapter 18, verse 2, that this is a place that our Lord frequented. He, on occasion, would come here to pray, to rest, to meditate. It's possible that it was such a familiar routine of his that Judas knew where to find him at a time like this. And so they go to Gethsemane, this place with olive trees. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. That's the way the ESV translates, a difficult translation in the Greek, and it's uncertain exactly the phrase there. The ESV says, sleep and take your rest later on. Your Bible might phrase it a little bit differently. 
See, he says, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, what an interesting passage this is. We are used to seeing our Lord, our wonderful Lord Jesus. We're used to seeing Him, the Master of the universe, be in complete command of every situation, whether it's being stirred awake uh, in the middle of a storm and standing and speaking and calming the storm, whether it's casting demons out of uh, a crazy man, out of the tombs. Our Lord always is in control. On occasion, one occasion, they came around Him, the community did, and the crowds, and they were going to cast Him off a cliff. And what did He do? He just walked right through the crowd. It was not His time to die. Jesus is always in control. He's the Master of the universe. He's the King of the universe. And here we see Him face down on the ground, grieving, sorrowful, troubled. It's very disconcerting. It occurred to me that there are some significant lessons that we should observe or takeaways from this. And I've simply divided our sermon into two parts. One is six lessons that I'd like us to observe, or it could be observations really, but six lessons that we have from this incident, this occasion, now just a few hours before our Lord will go to the cross. The time has come and God's sovereign timetable has been ticking. God's sovereign clock has been ticking. And and the time is near now where He will become the ultimate sacrificial lamb and He will substitute in for the sins of the world once and for all. All of the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament are just hours away of being complete as they were a picture of this very moment. Six lessons that we're going to observe and then uh, I believe that the, the, the key to the passage and... The high point of the passage is when our Lord says, not my will, but your will be done. And there's a point of surrender to the will of the Father. So we're going to look at six key lessons now, and and then let's look at those four key words and recognize that those four key words are life-changing. If we get to a place of brokenness where we can say that. The first thing we notice is, in his weakness, we have, letter A in our outline, if you're following along, is that this, is, this passage gives us a glimpse into the humanity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. I mean, we recognize that Jesus was all God, but he is also all man. This is a very difficult thing. Many thick books with small print have been written discussing this topic, but God sent God to the earth. Jesus is the human form of the second member of the Godhead, and he was 100% God. Everything about him was God. He was not less than God in any way. He was all God, complete God. He was part of the Trinity. He's the second member of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But when, when he submitted Philippians 2 and humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and became obedient even unto death on a cross... He took the form of a man, a human. In God's plan, remember, the only satisfactory answer to the spiritual law of the universe that the wages of sin is death is that something die, blood flow, to pay the penalty for sin. That was exemplified throughout the Old Testament in a temporary fashion as lambs were killed, goats and pigeons and doves. And sacrifices were made. 
for a covering, a temporary covering. And once and for all, our Lord Jesus, in the form of a human who alone was sinless and kept the law, was the only one who could be a satisfactory sacrifice to meet the demands of a holy God. So as God looked at everybody in the world, there was no one who could be a substitute to pay the penalty for anybody else. Everybody was required to pay the penalty for their own sin until Jesus enters the picture. And then Jesus, because he was perfect, and in God's design and plan, Jesus was able, as a representative, to go to the cross and take the sins of the world upon himself. So that sins that we have done transferred backwards to the cross, sins that everybody in the Old Testament had done, moved forward to the cross, and Jesus compiled and piled up upon himself the sin of the world, and there he went. And it took a person to do this. And so in God's plan, Jesus was born of Mary, he grew up, and he was a real man, and he was 100% man. Just like he was 100% God, he was 100% human. And we really can't get that. That is a tension that we have to live with that has many unanswerable problems to it. But it's exactly what God reveals to us in Scripture. Theologians who are really smart call it the hypostatic union. That all God and all man came together in one person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were both 100% represented there in one person. What we have in this passage today that bothers us as we peek through the gate into Gethsemane in the middle of the night in the darkness that bothers us is we see testimony of the humanity of Christ. Now, it's sinless humanity. Make sure you know that. Though our Lord could feel and be tempted and have desire, He never yielded in a sinful way to any wrong desire. In His godness, and in his deity, he could not sin. What we have here is a glimpse into the humanity of Christ. Now just think about it. In verse 36, he says, sit here to the eight disciples. And he takes Peter, James, and John with him. He was closest to them. Throughout the testimony of the Gospels, we regularly see them separated out. Um, they were at the Mount of Transfiguration, for example. We often, he had his twelve, and then he had his three, Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee. James and John, he had his three, and then of them, John seems to be the one that was closest, John the Beloved. So the twelve, and then the three, and then the one. And he takes the three with him, and he says, I'm going to pray. He says, I go over there to pray. Verse 36 says, as we look at the humanity of Christ, it's demonstrated and exemplified, isn't it? Number one, in Jesus' very need to pray. Why would God need to pray? In fact, each one of these three points is is characterized by the word need. It has to be about the human side of Christ because the deity side of Christ has no need. God, by definition, can't have need. He's not incomplete. To have a need is to reference an incompleteness or, or some, something that's unsatisfied. God is completely satisfied all the time. God is completely whole. God is lacking nothing. God cannot need something. Or He would be less than perfect. God is completely perfect. And in His perfection, you can't lack if you lacked, you wouldn't be perfect. In His humanity, our Lord had a desire to pray. We saw that exemplified throughout His earthly ministry, didn't He? He would rise early in the morning while it was still dark, and He would go to a private place, often in the wilderness or in the countryside. He would slip away and He would find a place to pray. In His humanity, He had a need to fellowship, 
with his heavenly Father. Secondly, notice that he brought the three with him. He, verse 37, brought Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. He brought them with them. And I think what we see in, in this is a testimony to his need for fellowship. His need for fellowship. I mean, this is a critical point. He knows that he's just hours away. He is becoming overwhelmed in his humanity with the reality of what the next few hours are going to hold. And he wants close fellowship right then. I remember years ago when we had a horrible car wreck and my wife Janet was at Winchester Medical Center for 13 days. It happened late in the evening and through the night we were transferred down to Winchester and Janet was still in the ER. They were figuring her out and and taking care of her with great care and a lot of concern. And I wasn't allowed in there and I slipped into the waiting room nearby and I put the lazy boy back and I was just thinking and praying and, and it was the early hours of the morning and early on, not long after daylight, um, by 7 a.m. around the corner came uh, then our chairman of the elders, Wayne LeHue. Man, it was good to see him. I mean, I was in trouble. There was a lot of unknowns about my wife right then, and we were beat up from that car accident, and I had needs, and I was weak. And when my brother walked in, when Wayne walked in, oh, man, somebody here to help bear my burdens, to bring an encouraging word, to pray with me. Our Lord and His humanity had exactly the same needs. So the very fact that he's praying is indicative of his humanity, the very fact that his need for fellowship and someone to be close to him. Thirdly, I think what we see in the picture at the end of verse 37 is the spilling over of emotion here in a very specific way. He says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The overwhelming emotion shows us the humanity of our Lord at this time. Troubled in the Greek, translated into the word that's in Greek, translated into English, troubled here in the ESV, has inference to it. And it means, the idea there is, it is a restless, distracted, shrinking from some trouble or thought of trouble, which nevertheless cannot be escaped. So you got a problem, you know you have a problem, you know you're facing a problem, the problem is real, and, it, and you, you are bothered by that problem, but nevertheless, it cannot be escaped. The problem cannot be escaped. It's a feeling of being troubled. You are facing something that you, you basically cannot change. Let's think for just a minute what some of the troubling factors might be emotionally in our Lord's life at this time. I mean, I think letter A, the deceit of Judas has to be high on the list, doesn't it? Here this guy's been with him as a trusted confidant for three years. He's ministered with him. He's been with him, and now he's going to kiss him on the cheek and he's going to betray him, the dirty dog. Betrayal is a horrible reality. Betrayal of someone that you love and that they love you and that you trust. Now, I know our Lord had insight into what was happening. But the betrayal of Judas certainly had to be part of what was troubling him. How about the desertion of the eleven? The desertion of the eleven. Remember, our Lord had just said, shortly before this, a couple hours before, at the table, in the Passover room, all of you will fall away tonight on account of me. And that's when Peter had spoken so strongly, Lord, never, and in his arrogance, even if all of these, and he pointed at his fellow disciples, I think, even if all of these low life will desert you, I will never desert you. 
And our Lord knew that they would run like rabbits as soon as that little entourage down below at the mountain came up with their swords and their torches. He knew certainly that the denial of Peter was imminent. I mean, we just talked last week and, and, and the account there where down the corridor Peter looked and as the rooster crowed, remember? Their eyes met, Jesus and Peter, and he had been denying them and he had been denying them, what, to an army, to armed guards? No, to little children coming up to him saying, aren't you one of his followers? And he swears on an oath, never! And he looks up and there's his Lord and right in front of his Lord Jesus he says, I never knew the man. It's unbelievable. The denial of Peter, our Lord knows exactly what's going to unfold. How about the disrespect of the trial? The disrespect of the trial. In his humanity, our Lord had significant things to face here in the next couple of hours. They beat him with rods. They whipped him with the lashes of a cat of nine tails. They rammed thorns down on his head. They blindfolded him, spit upon him, smacked him with their fists in their open hands, told him to prophesy. If he was a prophet, tell me who hit you just now. Nah, 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 nah. And they're doing this, they're doing this to the one who spoke the worlds into existence with a word. They're doing this to the one, the second member of the Godhead, who was present when, when God created the heavens and the earth. And the Trinity was all actively engaged. And Colossians in the New Testament says, not only that, that all of this was created by Him and for Him, and that all of it holds together by the word of His mouth. In other words, He spoke a word, and all the laws of the universe are in place, holding it all together, and He can speak a word, and He can make it all fly from together. And these punks are smacking Him and spitting on Him. That's the humanity part. And our Lord is in the garden and He's overwhelmed with the reality of the distress and He's troubled, the deceit of Judah, the desertion of the eleven, the denial by Peter, the disrespect of the trial. But as difficult as the physical abuse would be, I think that we also see in the grief and sorrow and in, and in the troublesome nature of our Lord here. By the way, it was interesting to me to, to read from one Bible commentator that I was reading on this passage, said we never in our Gospels ever have an account of the Lord laughing. But we have multiple passages where our Lord grieved. Isn't that interesting? I just thought I'd throw that out there. He said, my soul is sorrowful, verse 38, even unto death. So this is a reminder, letter B, of the reality of the cross. Not only do we get a glimpse in Gethsemane of the humanity of Christ, but we are reminded of the reality of the cross at Gethsemane. Verse 38 again. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Please stay with me. You see, our Lord knew that beyond the physical abuse, there was going to be a spiritual thing that was going to go on. He knew that he was giving his life, for example, as a ransom for many. He was going to be executed in place of other criminals. I've often thought about that walk. Sometimes when guests are from out of town, we'll swing by Samuel Street in town and 
and uh, there the, where the location is where they hung John Brown. And there were a, a good many other folks that were hung outside of town there um, through the years in that period. I thought, what is it like to have your hands tied behind your back, have a, a hood of cloth over your head, and you're walking out, and they have you by the arm, and they put the rope, and what are you thinking about as they're tying the rope around your neck? You're going to die. And there was a, a spiritual reality going on here where there was an exchange that was going to take place in the, in, between Christ and His Heavenly Father and the sinfulness of the world. And He was going to become the ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28. Secondly, He knew no sin, but He would, in just a couple hours, He who knew no sin would become sin. As though He sinned every sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I reference it also, often. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might know a righteousness that is in Christ alone. That means that at the cross, the Father puts on Him full accountability, responsibility of every sin, of everybody in the whole world who ever sinned as though He did it. Like taking a claw hammer and bashing the head in of a seven-year-old girl. Or raping a grandma. Or burning down a, a, a community and people dying in their beds asleep because you're a pyromaniac. Every drug abuse, every horrible backhand of abuse of a woman, it's as though Jesus himself did it. And the Father holds him accountable right there. He knew no sin, but he would become sin in just a couple hours. And he knew that he would be cursed by God. Isn't that interesting? That God was going to curse God on the tree. In Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Quoting from Deuteronomy 21.23. What, what an incredible reality. As our Lord... All God, all human, puts this all together emotionally. It's overwhelming. John Walvoord, for many years, was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, and he's written many books, and he has a commentary on Matthew, and he wrote, No man in sinful and mortal flesh can understand the conflict in the holy soul of Jesus, who had never experienced the slightest shadow of sin and had never known any barrier between himself and the Father. He had never, ever, ever been separated from His Father. And now His Father is going to turn His back on Him. Is it any wonder that He was troubled and sorrowful? This is insight. This passage is into the intensity of the grief. Exactly how deep was it? 38 says His soul was very sorrowful. Going then, verse 39, a little farther, it says that He, he fell on His face. The master of the universe face plants on the ground and begins to grab the ground. And, and I take it groan in prayer. And if we took the time to look in, in Luke chapter 22, it says that, that this is the time when it was as though he sweat drops of blood. This is intense grief. It's how real it was to him. I don't know that anybody knows exactly what that phrase means. Did it mean that he was so distressed and, and so overwhelmed and troubled that the strain of his prayers and the strain of the emotion literally broke the capillaries under the skin and, and blood literally oozed out like sweat? 
We know that the grief was significant. He then talks about, in his prayer, he says, Father, end of verse 39, if it be possible, would you let this cup pass from me? What cup is he talking about? It's the cup of the wrath of God. God's wrath is going to come and, and punish all the sin of the world. And that punishment is going to be consummated in Christ. All of God's wrath is going to be focused on Him and it's like a, a cup of poison that Jesus is going to have to drink. Lord, would you please just let me not have to drink out of this cup? But then He doesn't stop and He prays as He taught His disciples to pray back in Matthew 6. It's third service, I can't think. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, but nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. But Lord, would you let this cup pass from me? And he does this three times. It reminds you of Paul, doesn't it? In his thorn in the flesh. Lord, would you please remove this? Would you please remove this? Would you please remove this? That is the human side of Christ. The human side of Christ begging God the Father to please make it to where I don't have to go through all of this. As difficult as the physical torture was, the spiritual reality of his father turning his back, of his father holding him accountable for all of this sin as though he did it when he really didn't do it, was overwhelming. I think this is clearly a picture of the record of the humility. It's, it's, it's going on record. The humility is documented here, isn't it? That Jesus is on his face in the dirt praying and crying and begging God to please allow this to go down another way. On the other hand, not my will, but yours be done. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This shows also the vulnerability of the disciples, doesn't it? I mean, this is tough talk. Peter, I'm with you, Lord. I'm with you. I'm the man. You got nothing to worry about. I'm here even trying to talk him out of God's sovereign plan and will for his own life, Jesus' life. No, Lord, you don't have to do that. And he's sound asleep. His Lord, in this moment of need, says, would you come and pray with me? Would you come fellowship with me? Would you come bear this burden with me? And Peter can't keep his eyes open. Big, tough Peter. And so we see the, the vulnerability of the human side of our disciples, don't we? I think there is a, a practical lesson. My dad used to talk about all-night prayer meetings. I thought that was the dumbest idea I ever heard of. How do you stay awake in the middle of the night? Well, I'll tell you what, if you're ready to be tortured and put on a cross, you're not even sleepy. And at a time like that, you need the brothers to be beside you, the disciples to be, to show their vulnerability. Letter F, this illustrates the priority of prayer, doesn't it? Verse 41, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he's addressing all of the disciples, but he speaks directly to Peter because he knows that Peter especially needs to be on his guard because he's already boasted about the fact that he's not going to yield, but he's going to betray his Lord anyway, and he's going to make a fool out of himself. He's going to run. He's going to be so ashamed of himself in just a few hours. And he says, Peter, why don't you pray so that you cannot yield to temptation? 
We illustrate this picture here in the priority of prayer, both in his instruction to Peter, but also we see our Lord face down in the dirt in weakness, don't we? We see our Lord face down in the dirt in weakness. What's he doing? He's praying. But by the end, the prayer has been answered. Angels have come and ministered to him. Luke 22, you want to read that. There's some really good insight in Luke. While he was face down, while he was agonizing and in his troubled state, angels came and ministered to him. It reminds us of when he was in the wilderness being tempted, how angels ministered to him at the end of that 40 days. And by that time he prays three times, he has resolution with the Father, he recognizes that God's will is for him to go to the cross, to follow through with plan A, and he faces his betrayers with confidence. Down in verse 46, rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. Many Bible students think he could look down the trail and he could see them coming up to the Mount of Olives from down below with their torches in the dark and the entourage. Some very important realities in the life of our Lord. I think the, I think the pinnacle part of the passage is when he yields over and he says, not my will, but thine be done. Four key words, thy will be done. Think about it. If you say, thy will be done, just like Jesus did, it's not what he wanted. It was agonizing. He gets to a point where he yields and surrenders to the Father's will. Letter A, it is indeed, thy will be done, is indeed a statement of surrender, isn't it? It is a statement of surrender. Okay, I give up. Thy will be done. It's a denial of self. It's a denial of self. No longer my plan, Lord. Only yours. It's a, it's a statement of one's willingness to obey too, isn't it? When we can get where Jesus was and we can look at our Heavenly Father and we can say, not my will, but thy will be done, isn't that saying, I am willing, Lord, to obey in my surrender? By the way, let me point out that when you say, if you are going to say, they're dangerous words, if you're going to say, thy will be done, Lord, then you need to pay attention to the revealed will of God through the Word of God. Lots of times when we say, Thy will be done, we're looking for some kind of, uh, some kind of feeling or some kind of message or some kind of voice or some kind of revelation. So really, when we say, Thy will be done, what we are saying is, I am committed to the Word of God. That's what you're saying. Because the will of God is first and foremost revealed right here in the Word of God. And if you're not paying attention to the Word of God, you're going to miss the will of God. So don't say, Thy will be done. So when you say, Thy will be done, you are saying, I am committed to the obedience of Scripture. That's what you're saying. It's a willingness to obey. Letter D, it's proof of brokenness and humility, isn't it? It's proof of brokenness and humility. There's our Lord. Says, Lord... Please remove this cup from me. But nevertheless, not what I will, but thy will be done. I'm done, Lord. I'm taking my hands off. I can't change that person. I can't make that kid change. I can't solve these financial problems. I can't do it. It's a sign of being humbled, of being broken. A proof of brokenness and humility is when we can get to a place in our Christian life where we say... Not my will, Lord, but thine be done. Letter E, it is also a sure sign of faith and trust, isn't it? I mean, what are you going to trust? 
When I say to God, thy will be done, it means I'm going to trust you that your ways are right, that your ways are best, and that my ways are not. What do we take away? Well, let me warn you, I think that all of us ought to get to a place in brokenness and humility where we say, thy will be done. But let me warn you, one of the takeaways from today is the reality of the picture that's presented in Gethsemane is that obedience is not always comfortable. Obedience is not always comfortable. If you're going to say, thy will be done, Hebrews reminds us that you haven't obeyed even to the point of shedding your own blood yet, have you? In other words, there, it could even get worse. It could be harder. And when our Lord said, thy will be done, and he surrendered to the will of the Father in obedience, it was one of the most difficult stretches that anybody ever could face. You could argue it was the most difficult thing that anybody ever did in the history of the world and ever will do. Secondly, I think we know from this story and one of our takeaways is that we indeed have a sympathetic high priest, don't we? We have a sympathetic high priest. I wrote the very verses there for you. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. You remember a couple weeks ago when I started the message about my sister and her broken engagement and how her no-good-for-nothing boyfriend broke her heart? Where do you find help when you've been betrayed? Where do you find help when your whole world has caved in? Where do you find help? What is going to sustain you? It's the reality of the fact that your Lord Jesus Christ has already been there and done that. And he is a sympathetic high priest, now representing you at the right hand of the Father, exactly the way you need to be represented. He won't miss a thing. He's been there. He knows what it feels like. It's a profound spiritual reality. Thirdly, I think we have to take away from this passage that it is through prayer that we become confident in God's will for our lives. We become confident of God's will for our lives through committed prayer time. And I'm not sure, you know, breathing up a prayer in 30 seconds cuts it. Now, you keep breathing up those prayers. Now, I'm not sure if five minutes of prayer is really what it's all about. Now, keep praying for five minutes. When's the last time we prayed for an hour three times? You see, our Lord committed deeply in, in this just the battle of prayer, communicating with His Heavenly Father that His will would be crystal clear to Him. And this is our Lord. How much more do we need that, huh? Well, what an incredible passage as we observe the weakness of our Lord Jesus in His humanity. But praise God for His obedience and that He followed through with the will of the Father and He became our substitute for our sin, huh? That He did for me what I couldn't do for myself and don't even want to do for myself. And that's humbling, isn't it? That I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. And remember, the, uh, I always said at communion, Christians are odd. This is why we run to the cross. It's why we sing songs of the cross and the blood. Because it's there that Jesus substituted in our place. Is your faith and trust in Christ today? I hope so. Christian, are you at a place where you can say in brokenness and humility, not my will, Lord, but thy will be done. Let's stand and close in prayer, please.
And so, Father, thank you for this insight. Thank you for uh, just this most remarkable accounting that Matthew wrote down and the others just showing us the humanity of our Lord and the difficulty of that hour and then the humility and the obedience with which he responded to your will. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood of Christ that we've reflected upon for a few minutes today. Thank you for our great salvation that is in Christ. Thank you for this finished, completed work. And I pray that if there's anyone here today who needs to place their faith and trust in Christ alone, that you would draw them unto yourself. Open their eyes to these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we do need to stack our chairs once again. It's a joy to look out and see Dan and Elizabeth Hanchu, one of our missionaries here, Bible College professor, our guest today. If you get a chance, shake his hand and welcome him.